Now, I'm not telling you this, like, just to rub it in. It just happens to be pertinent that I am a lifelong San Francisco Giants fan, um, which made this a great week. The Holdens from California there, we were, I was tweeting back with their daughter there in the ninth inning when we thought we were going to tie the ball game up. I, I tweeted, I was like, I think I'm literally going to throw up. This is, I, I, it's, this is so close. Now, I became a San Francisco Giant fan a long time ago. When I was, when I was in high school, my, my best friend in high school played first base for our baseball team, and um, he was a Oakland A's fan. He loved the Bash Brothers. If you remember back to the, the late 80s, early 90s, there was Jose Canseco, who just like shot his finger off this week or something. Did y'all, I don't that guy's, got, that guy's got a book to write about his life one day. I don't know. And Mark McGuire, these guys are hitting home runs. And, and everybody loves the Oakland A's. And my best friend is this Oakland A's fan. And I had watched baseball, but I didn't really have a team. And, you know, I needed a team. And obviously it wasn't going to be the Oakland A's because they were his team. Well, I also don't like American League baseball because they don't play the real game. They have this thing called a designated hitter. It's not even real baseball. But anyway, that's a whole nother, whole nother series for a whole nother time. So I was looking at National League and the Giants were doing well. And I fell in love with Will Clark. And so the Giants became my team. And I just started following them and became a Giants fan. And so get up to this, this week and the Giants are in, in the World Series. It's going to game seven. And, and one of our ladies on staff, her name is Mary Beth Oliver, um, she put something on Facebook. She's at home during game five with her husband. I'm not there. We haven't had any kind of conversation about baseball at all, but she, she comments on Facebook what her husband said to her as they're watching the baseball game. He says, quote, I'm going for the Royals because Brett doesn't need to win again. And she posts that on Facebook. And so, you know, it alerts me because she tags me in it. And I thought, that's so rude. Um, so I told her, I said, well, you tell him that he's dead to me. Um, you know, like Godfather style, he and your family, y'all are all dead to me. I cannot believe that. That's ridiculous. So she comes in back in the office this week and, and she's laughing about it. We're talking about it. And as she said, he wanted you to know that it's not personal. And I said, well, actually he said my name. So I think it is. <laughs> and two, I said, you know, that would be kind of like me coming. She's got two daughters that are college age. I said, that would like be like me talking bad about your daughters and then going, but it's not personal. I just feel that way about college students. And she's, no, we're not talking about your children. And I said, listen, you can talk bad about my wife and children, but don't talk bad about the San Francisco Giants. I mean, come on, let's get serious. And so we had, we had a good laugh about it. You know, thinking about that, that, how we have allegiances and things like that. I mean, I really don't feel that way, but it's pretty close. Um, there was a time where our allegiances, that the people we connected with, that we felt a part of outside of our family, it might have been a, a sports team um, or, or maybe a political thing. I mean, there were, you know, you're a Dallas Cowboy fan and you're always a Dallas Cowboy fan. And, and I mean, just let me just say this. I've heard people say this. Well, I was a Dallas Cowboy fan until Jerry Jones got there. Then you're not a Dallas Cowboy fan. That's how that works. So, I mean, you, you, you have these allegiances. You know, you might have an allegiance to a political party. You might go, hey, I'm a Democrat and, and I don't care. My best friend is running for office as a Republican. I'm just going to smile and say, I love you, friend, but I can't vote for you. You know, because that was where our allegiances used to be. It used to be just sports team, family, maybe politics. There weren't a whole lot of other things that we connected to and then also let it shape our identity. But in the new world with technology and social media and the internet, that's starting to change. Because we're finding that we have allegiances and identity forming in, in other things, like maybe even hobbies. Like there might be some of you that you're runners. 
and you love to run, and you really, you have an allegiance to running. You have an identity shaped by that, and it's different now than it used to be. People used to run, but there weren't magazines written solely for runners. There weren't websites and apps solely for runners. There weren't groups that, that met regularly and your social group became a group of runners. That's new within the last 20, 30 years. And, and so we're starting to, to connect that way and our allegiance and our identity is formed in things that may be like hobbies. It may be for students, it may be gaming. It may be skaters. You know, years ago, California, there was a big skateboard scene, but now because of technology, it, it, I mean, you can be in the middle of Kansas and, and have that because you can connect to these groups. And so our allegiance, our identity kind of forms around things like hobbies. It forms around things like ideology. We could have a lot of fun today. We're not going to, but we could have a lot of fun. And I could go, hey, everybody who is for gun control, come over here. And everybody who's against gun control, go over there. And just by saying that, some of y'all are uncomfortable right now. You're like looking around like, I don't wanna because we have got this ideology and as we've argued it and researched it, we've become entrenched in it and we are now aligned to it. You could be pro-gun control and somebody could come in and make the greatest argument against it. And you, could, you, mean, you couldn't even hear it because you've been, your allegiance is, is so shifted in that direction that it's become your identity. It could be, um, it could be gay marriage the topic of the day, you know, in, in our culture. It could be abortion. It could be almost anything. We, we get entrenched and it becomes who we are and I'm not leaving this position no matter what. Now, where's our identity supposed to be? This is, that's one of those questions that, you know, when you're in church, you can throw out the always right answer, Jesus. Because uh, our identity should be not in, not in an ideology, not in a hobby, not even in our family. Our, our identity is supposed to be in Jesus. And that's what I love about the story of, of a guy named Epaphras. Epaphras was an evangelist in China years ago. During the Boxer Rebellion, thousands of Chinese uh, believers were killed. They were executed. Uh, during the Boxer Rebellion, China was trying to get, el eliminate anything that, sh that, that resembled the West or anything that wasn't uh, motherland China. And so Christians who uh, were, were believing in this, this religion that came from outside of China, they were executed, they were imprisoned. And Epaphras was a Christian evangelist. And during that time, he, was, he refused to sing the communist anthem. He refused to salute pictures of Chairman Mao Zedong. He, he refused to be aligned to anything other than Jesus. And because of that, he was arrested and put in prison, life in prison, and spent his entire, nearly his entire life in prison. Well, 11 years after Mao Zedong passes away, all of a sudden, this evangelist Epaphras is freed from prison. He's 62 years old. He spent almost his whole life in prison. 62 years old. And, and I mean, you can imagine that day, that day of rejoicing, of, of happiness. I'm out of prison. I thought I was going to die here. And as he was released, he had no idea what was going on. Well, he comes to find out how he got released. He got released because they changed his paperwork. They changed his paperwork in the system and recorded that he had recanted his faith in Jesus, which he'd never done. But in order to get out of the political pressure, hey, we'll release this guy that was here for years, but we also have to save face. So we'll just say he recanted. And so that was what the official paperwork did. So here's what this guy, Epaphras, did. He goes and when he finds out, 
rents a building right next to the prison and turns it into a cell and places himself under, cell, uh, under house arrest in that building to continue out his prison sentence. To make the statement, I didn't recant Jesus. And if recanting Jesus is what frees me, then I need to be back in prison because that's where I belong because I was in prison for Jesus and I'm gonna stay in prison for Jesus. He fasted five days a week for 15 years. And at the age, I think of 78 or 70, I can't remember how old he was, in, in his 70s, he finally passed away, never having left that house that he placed himself under house arrest. Now you take a guy like that and there is no question of who his allegiance is to, right? I mean, he walked away. He had a chance to be free after decades and said, nope, I will continue to be a prisoner for Jesus Christ. No one would have doubted where he stood, where his identity is formed. But where for us in the 21st century, Western culture, Texas, Georgetown, Texas in 2014, what does it look like for our allegiance to be fully with Jesus? What does it look like for our identity to be shaped by nothing else but Jesus? That's a great question. It's a question that our culture has tried to answer for us. And, and really it's been boiled down to this, you know, you go to church and you be good, right? You know, um, now in our culture, you know, people might say you go to church and you be good and you vote Republican. That, that's what it means to be a Christian. That's, that's not right, but that's what the world has kind of boiled it down to for us. Now I want to suggest that there are a lot of things that make us, that our identity looks like when we're uh, chasing after Jesus. But I, I wanna suggest over the next three weeks that, that our integrity, how we speak more specifically, our honesty, that our integrity, our speech, our honesty, it shows us where we're spiritually aligned. And we're gonna look at a couple of passages of scripture. I want us to go back to Genesis chapter three. We're gonna go back to the very first lie this week. The very first lie that ever happened. Now, right before we pick up what we're gonna read, God has created the universe. He's created the earth. He's created Adam and Eve. He's put them uh, in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, we don't know a lot about it. We have this, these two chapters in Genesis. Um, but we know it was this pristine and perfect place. The most important thing about it though, is that God walks intimately with Adam and Eve in the garden. That's what, that's what we see. We see that God has this relationship that is unbroken. It's very real, it's intimate and it's authentic. And Adam and Eve are there with God and it's paradise on earth. And God loves Adam and Eve, but, but in order for Adam and Eve to love God, in order to have this love relationship, there has to be an opportunity to choose love because love doesn't, love doesn't, you can't force love. Love is a choice. You know, when you got married, you, you made a choice. I'm going to, and you stood before a pastor and, and maybe a family or a judge and some friends and, and you exchanged some vows and you said for, for better or for worse, for rich or for poor, sickness and health, I am choosing, that's what you're saying, I'm choosing to love you. I'm gonna be committed to you. I'm gonna walk with you. You chose that. And before you did that, you chose to get engaged and you chose to set a marriage date. And you said, I, I, I have feelings for you that may not be under my control at the moment, but I'm choosing to love you, feelings or not. So God and Adam and Eve are in the garden and God wants this love relationship with Adam and Eve. Well, in order to have a love relationship and not just to have little God bots that God created that have no opportunity to actually love, God puts a tree in the center of the Garden of Eden. And he says, Adam, Eve, actually he tells Adam at first, because Eve's not even there. He says, Adam, this, this is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
don't eat from it. Don't eat from it. Because right now, and here, here's, the, here's the cool thing. Right now, all they know is good. Salt, that's the only thing there. The only way they'll ever know evil is to do something evil. And the only evil thing they can do is disobey God, which is eat from this tree. So it's, it's kind of, yeah, as long as you don't eat from it, you're just going to live in good. But you now have a choice to love me. And, and you can love me by doing everything that you dream of. Just don't do this and we will be in this love relationship. And of course, if you've been in vacation Bible school growing up or in church for at least a few weeks, you've probably, you probably know what happened. Adam and Eve take of the fruit and they eat and sin comes into the world. Now, I want us to go back and read a portion of this, uh, this experience in chapter, Genesis chapter three, verse one. It's when the serpent, Satan, shows up. Verse one, it says this. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you'll not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some of her to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. You go back to the very beginning of time and Satan shows up. This is a, it's our first introduction to the devil in his talking with people. And we see something about his very nature, his very character. We see that he's a liar. We see that that's what he, does. he even comes in and starts priming the pump, knowing full well what's going on. He asks Eve, he says, did God say you can't eat from any tree of the garden? Now, that wasn't what was said. Eve knew that was not what was said. Satan knew that was not what was said. But he's already starting to practice deception. He's already starting to get thinking that God may not be trustworthy. And he goes in and she says, no, we're not supposed to eat of the tree of the garden, this tree in the middle. It's, it's a, the tree of the garden of good and evil. And if, if we eat of it, and then Eve says, if we touch it, which wasn't even said, but if we eat of it, we're gonna die. And now here's what Satan does because he's crafty. And we've talked about, we just came out of a series about temptation for several weeks. As the tempter, he takes the truth and he twists it. And he says this, he says, you're not going to die if you do that. Now stop there. There's, there's a bit of truth to that. Because as Adam and Eve look at this fruit in the tree of the garden, I don't know how in-depth God had gotten in their conversation. We don't see that. But if they are suggesting that I'm going to eat the, the fruit and then I'm going to, it's going to poison me and I'm going to physically die, Satan is giving them the truth. You're not going to physically die. God, you don't, don't believe that. That's not true. You're not going to die. What he didn't tell was the whole truth. While you're not going to die physically, you're going to die spiritually because you are going to break the relationship, the perfect intimate relationship that you have with God now. Innocence is going to be lost. Perfection is going to disappear. This place that God has for you where you live and you walk with him, you're going to be taken and sent out of this garden never to return. And your relationship with God is going to be fractured and there will be nothing Nothing. Here's how oh, this is the crazy part. There is nothing, Adam and Eve, that you can do to restore it. Only God can. 
And so he doesn't give the full truth. He goes, you're not gonna, you're not gonna fall over and die. And they take the fruit and they eat it. And everything that we just talked about, the consequences happen. And they're removed from the garden and fellowship with God is broken. Their innocence is lost. They end up having, looking down and realizing they're naked and sewing fig leaves together to try to cover themselves. And the liar has won battle number one. Now, let's fast forward to John chapter eight. We're gonna go to where Jesus is and we're gonna see what Jesus says about Satan. Now, Jesus is in, we're going to pick up in John chapter 8. Jesus is in a discussion with the Pharisees and with some Jewish people. And he's, he's actually got some people as he's talking, they've started to believe in him. And so he's talking, there's Pharisees in this group. There's some, there's some disciples. And Jesus starts talking about truth to them. And Jesus says this, and you've probably heard this verse before. Jesus says, hey, uh, you'll know the truth and the truth is going to set you free. Well, that offends some of the overly spiritual in the group. I like, what do you mean? What do you mean, I'm paraphrasing for you, what do we mean set us free? And they go, We're, we are descendants of Abraham. As descendants of Abraham, we, we've never been enslaved to anybody. Now, physically, that was not true. Uh, they, they had been slaves in Egypt. They had been taken over by the North, had been taken, North Israel, had been taken over by Assyria. Um, they, they've been enslaved by people off and on throughout their time. In fact, while, while they're having this conversation, they're living in Israel that's under Roman occupation. You know what I mean? So what they're doing here is they're over-spiritualizing here. They're going, you know what? What do you mean, what do you mean slaves? What? We're, we're kids of Abraham. I mean, we have the promise of God. God is on our side. It doesn't matter. I mean, physically we might be under rule of somebody else, but we will never be slaves because God is in our corner. And then Jesus, what are you talking about? That doesn't even make sense. And Jesus basically responds to him. He's like, listen, knuckleheads, I'm not talking about the physical either. I'm talking about spiritual. You are slaves to sin. Sin has got a hold of you and you don't know how to get out of it. And I'm the only way out. You think I'm talking physical, but I'm not. I'm talking spiritual. And if you really were children of Abraham, if you really were chasing after God the Father like Abraham did, if you really were practicing and living your faith, this would be the greatest moment of your life because you would have realized who I am. You would have realized that the God that you've been chasing, had you been doing that, the God that you had been worshiping, if you were doing that, you would have realized stands before you right now because I'm God in the flesh. And here's what he says kind of at the end of that conversation. I, well, we'll pick up a little bit of it. Look in John chapter eight, verse 43. Jesus says, why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. Now, this gets really uncomfortable really fast. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Remember, he's talking to like religious leaders. He's talking to people who think that they are spiritually with it. And he says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you're not of God. 
That's one of those moments in the Bible, like if you go, man, I wish I could go back and see Jesus. That's one of those moments I'd suggest you don't show up at. That would have been this uncomfortable, awkward moment when Jesus looks at the, at the religious leaders and he goes, you know what? You're not sons of Abraham. You're sons of the devil. <laughs> You're, you are Satan's kids. And I mean, you know, those were fighting words. You talk about identity. You know, you talk about fighting words, Republicans and Democrats, abortion, non-abortion, you know, these are fighting words. You're not of Abraham. You're not of an allegiance to this side of the war, the spiritual war. You're of the devil. And they'd go, you're crazy. We, we, we've spent our life studying religious things. And, and, and Jesus would say, you have no clue, no spiritual connection to God the Father. And, and so this is a moment that's very tense. But what we learn here is that Jesus goes, t- takes this moment and he connects it back to Genesis chapter three, what we just read. And he says, listen, your integrity, the way you speak truth and honesty, and he expands this out even more, the way you live, but we're talking about honesty and, and what you say. Your allegiance is shown by your integrity. He says, if you're a liar, where does that come from? If, if you have integrity issues, if you find yourself, in, in, when, when, when the temperature gets turned up and your back's against the wall and you know there's consequences on the other side of a conversation, if you choose self and you choose lie, here's what Jesus says, that comes from the father of lies. Jesus, in fact, I mean, here's the deal. If we're walking with Jesus, if we're children of Abraham, if we're following after Jesus, if we're Christians, our job is to, is to follow Jesus and we're becoming more like him tomorrow than we are today. More like him today than we were yesterday. That, that biblical understanding is called sanctification. I'm becoming more like Jesus every day. Well, Jesus said in John 14, 6, this is how he described himself. He said, I am the way. I am the truth and I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's what Jesus said. And so people, I know there are people who get offended that you go, hey, do you believe Jesus is the only way? Yes, I believe that because that's what Jesus said. You can be upset with me, but you need to be upset with him because he said it, I'm just repeating it. But when Jesus defined himself, he said, I'm the way, he said, I'm the life, but he said, I'm the truth. I, I am everything that is right. The, Satan is the father of lies. It's his character from the very beginning when we meet him in the scripture to this day, everything he does is deceitful and lying and wrong. Jesus, on the other hand, is on the other side of the spiritual war. And Jesus says, I am by definition truth. And so there's a very, a very black and white line that's been drawn throughout scripture. It says the followers of Jesus, if that is you and if that is me, then as we move in this sanctification process to become more like Jesus, every day we become more and more truthful. We become more and more honest. Because truth is what we delight in and lies and deception make us uncomfortable because the spirit of God is inside us and the spirit of God is not affiliated with lies and deception. Does that make sense? Now that's hard because somewhere along the way, we're like, well, I've lied before. I know I, know, I, know I made a decision to follow Jesus when I was seven and I was baptized and, and I'm trying to grow my faith. But you know what? If I was really honest, I think I lied this last week at some point. You know, there's a great possibility of that. What does your life look like when we peel it back? Are you moving towards honesty? Are you, are you in love with truth? Or is it just your natural reaction to go, you know what, I take care of myself? Because that'll tell you 
where you're aligned. It'll tell you who your allegiance is to. So here's a couple of things. We're gonna get some time to talk this morning. But here's what we do next. The line's been drawn. Most of us, I think, would agree, man, I'm supposed to be on Jesus' side. I'm supposed to be aligned with truth. Honesty should be, should be very important to me. And that, that's the thing, you know, I think a lot of times we, we, we throw out things like little white, we talk about little white lies and we talk about things and, oh, is honesty really that big of a deal? I mean, maybe I was dishonest here in this one little thing at work, but you know what? Uh, I didn't murder anybody. You know, I, I've been faithful to my spouse. You know, I might have lied, but I'm not stealing from, you know, my company. I'm not beating my kids. You know, so we go, those are the big things. And, and, and you know, it's kind of cool to me is that Jesus didn't say, I am the way, the non-child beater, faithful spouse. He said, I'm the way, I'm the truth. Jesus identified himself with truth and integrity, honesty. So what do we do? Here's, here's the, one of the hardest things. We've got to decide to trust. And this goes back, this connects to the series we were in last, talked about temptation, because when it comes to honesty, that's, we're going to have the temptation to move from truth to dishonesty. But we have to decide to trust that God is for us and that God is going to take care of us. That, that's the crux of the matter. When you have an opportunity to choose between truth and deception, honesty and lying, usually what it comes down to, unless you have some creative thing that I can't think of, what it comes down to is, is I, am I going to count on myself to provide for myself or am I going to count on God? Because usually there's consequences. If I tell the truth in this situation, there's going to be some sort of consequence. Otherwise, we would love the truth. We'd tell the truth. But we, we lie because we think the consequences of truthfulness may be too difficult. And I'll be really, really honest with you. They may be. You may have to confess something or you may be called on the carpet to answer a question for something in the past and truth is going to cost you something. And then you're going to feel the tension. Consequences are going to come if I tell the truth. And what you'll have to ask is this, do I trust God with the consequences? Do I trust God that he is going to, Romans 8, 28, work good to me out of all bad things? Do I trust God? Because if I don't trust God, the only person I have to trust is myself and I'm going to start saying anything I can to take care of myself. But if we trust God and we believe that he's in control and we believe that he is for us and we believe that he loves us, then when truth comes, we go, I'm stepping into truth because God is truth and I want to align myself with him. It will not ever be easy. This 81-year-old guy, named Robert Kupferschmidt, and he had a buddy that was a 52-year-old pilot and just had a little Cessna uh, single-engine airplane. And his, and his, his friend, said, who's 52, said to his friend, neighbor, 81-year-old, said, you want to go up and we'll go flying? And Robert Kupferschmidt says, yeah, that'd be cool. So they go get in, in this little Cessna and they, they take off. And as they're flying around, the 52-year-old pilot who has a pilot's license, the 81-year-old guy, Robert Kupferschmidt, he's never flown in his life. I mean, not, I mean, not a plane. He's ridden in a plane, but he doesn't, doesn't know how to fly a plane. All of a sudden, his buddy, 52-year-old, slumps over and passes out. And the plane starts to go into a nosedive. And so I don't know how it all happened, how that plane looks like, but, but Robert, the 81-year-old, grabs the stick and begins to, to pull it out of its nosedive. It doesn't know how to fly a plane. You know, he's only seen movies like you and I, and, and he doesn't know what to do. He gets on, gets on the radio, and he starts trying to call for help. I, you know, somebody help. I, I, my, my buddy's out. I don't know what to do. And two pilots that are nearby pick up his radio distress. 
and they start talking him through what to do. Here's what you're gonna do. Now look, you're gonna have an instrument panel that looks like this, you're gonna have one that looks like that. You need to keep these levels here. We're gonna talk you through this. Here's, okay, we found out where you're heading and this is where you need to turn. Gets him to the airport where he's gonna land, the little airport, and he ends up circling the airport twice as he's talking through, trying to figure out, here comes the hard part, the landing. Never landed a plane before in his life. Friends still in a medical emergency. And all he's got is these two voices in his ears and they talk him down and he lands the plane at 81 years old perfectly. I think you gotta get like a free pilot's license for that. I mean, that's, that's good stuff. Lands it and lives. Now, just go with me here for a second. What if during that scenario, as he's flying, and he's, and he's going, I don't know what to do. He's got these two voices in the air. And then one guy says, hey, I'm a pilot. I'm here to help you. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to look at this instrument panel. And you need to have it here. And, and here's what I want you to do. I need you to take that stick. I need you to move it to the left a little bit. What if he went in, in his mind? This would be crazy. But what if he went, you know, I don't know. I, I left. Seems to me I ought to go right. I mean, what, what you said to keep this kind of at, at 10,000 feet, 10,000 seems a little high to me. You know, I'm thinking more like four. Let's, let's do four. Now that's crazy. You know, but, but what if that, what if he just went, you know, guys, I, I don't really trust you. Now that would have never happened because that moment he has no clue what he's doing. All he can do are trust the people who are experts. And as silly as that sounds, don't we do that on a regular basis? God says, I, I am for you. God says, I've got a plan that if you'll walk with me, you're going to experience life. You're going to experience life overflowing, not to the full, life overflowing. I want you to do this. And one of the things that's important to me because it's who I am is honesty and truthfulness. And we come to that moment where the consequences are on the other side of our truthful statement. And we have to decide, do I trust God or not? Does that mean that God is going to work things out and all the consequences are gonna like disappear? They're gonna be, no, it doesn't. But would you, would you rather be in prison for all of your life like Epaphras for Jesus or free on your own? That's the question of trust. That's what it comes down to. And I don't say that as if it's an, as if it's an easy decision because some of us would struggle with that. It would be difficult for us. But the first step in this journey we're about to take for the next few weeks is deciding to trust God. That God, I'm going to be honest because you're honest. God, I'm going to step in truth because you're truth. And I want to be like you more tomorrow than I am today. And so God, I am taking the journey of truth and it's going to cost me. It's going to cost me. God, I realize that. All the chips are on the table. I, I see it's, it's going to be painful at some circumstance. Some, some point down the line, it's going to be painful. But God, I trust that you're for me. It brings us to the second thing. After, after we decide to trust, which some of us just may have stopped there, that's gonna be something you wrestle with this week. That's gonna be something as you have some discussions with your teenagers at home in the car, that's gonna be a hard discussion to have. And let me encourage you at this. As parents, I mean, it's really easy for us to teach this to our kids and to go, oh, you need to listen to everything that they're gonna say on Wednesday night because you need to be truthful. I need to know everything. Now, where were you last Friday night? You know, that, but it's not about them right now. It's about us because they're going to see us living in, in truth or not. And, and, the, and everything we say can come unraveled if they see us living something fake. Here's the second thing. 
First thing is decide to trust. The second thing is we've got to avoid the half-truths. That was one of the questions as ministry team as we were talking uh, at the beginning of planning in the series. I said, what, what, do you, what questions do you have? What questions do students have about honesty and integrity? And one of the questions was, well, what about half-truths? What about where, where we don't tell the whole truth, we keep some part back deceptively to protect ourselves, but we just tell a portion of the truth to satisfy. Well, I think we've already answered that question, haven't we? I mean, there's no half Jesus. Jesus didn't say, I'm the way, half the truth. I'm Je- it, he's truth. He, he is truth in its fullness. And so that is gonna be a struggle for us because we're gonna try to, you know, finagle our way out of the full truth to avoid the consequences. Now, I know there, there are some, some situations and scenarios that we could discuss well, if this happened and this happened and this happened, what would you do? And there's some ethicists that would probably pose some questions to us that would really move us from some black and white to some gray. And we'd go, man, I really struggle with that. That's a hard, and, and it, would, it would probably be fun to debate. But that's not where we're at today. We're at the 99.9% of the times in our everyday life where it is very easily black or white. I'm either aligned to Jesus and truth or I'm not. That, that's where we're at today. And that's what we're going to have to figure out. I'm going to read you a quote because I thought this was telling of our culture. This was said by Alan Dershowitz, who's the, uh, one of the professors at Harvard Law School. He says, on the basis of my academic and professional experience, I believe that no felony is committed more frequently in this country than the genre of perjury and false statements. Interesting. A law professor said there's no felony greater than people who lie after they've promised to tell the truth. The ABA Journal did a, um, a survey of over 50 U.S. state, federal judges, lawyers, academics, and, and the, the report said this, that most of the judges interviewed said that increasingly, quote, lawyers appearing before them are bending the truth, not telling the whole truth, or just plain lying. That's where our culture's headed. The people who, who we count on for truth and justice according to the surveys and the experts are liars themselves. God forbid that his people ever do that. I'm gonna close with this story. Then I'm gonna pray for us and then we're gonna let y'all talk. Sports Illustrated wrote a story and I thought it was interesting. Seven-year-old kid named Tanner Mulvey plays Little League Baseball. It could have been a kid out, he was in Florida, but it could have been a kid out on our uh, t-ball fields. And he's out there playing. He's playing second base in one game. And there's a kid on first base and the ball is hit to him at second base. He fields the ball as the, first, as the kid's running to second base and he reaches out to tag him and, and then throws the ball and, and the bang, bang play. The umpire calls the kid out, tagged out, double play. Exciting moment if you're a T-baller. This seven-year-old kid goes up to the umpire. He says, he'd caught the ball as the kid ran by and he tagged him, he's out. He walked up to the umpire and said, ma'am, I didn't tag him. She goes, oh, okay, well then, safe. (laughs) What do you do that when the kid says, I didn't tag him, put him on second base, he's safe. It made the Sports Illustrated because of what happened two weeks later. The same lady is umpiring the same team's game. Now this time, this kid Tanner's at shortstop and nearly the same thing happens. Ball fielded, he goes, tags the guy, the kid running from second to third, tries to make the play, but the reverse happens and the umpire calls the kid going to third base safe. 
And this little seven-year-old boy walks over, hands the ball to his pitcher. He's kind of dejected. He's shaking his head. And he goes back to shortstop. She's standing by there. And, she, and the umpire in the middle of the game stops him. And she goes, she goes, why are you upset? And he goes, because I tagged him, ma'am. And she goes, you're out. <laughs> and throws the kid out. And of course, the, the opposing coach comes out. He's like, what are you, you can't, you know, you can't let a kid, like, you know, you called him safe. You can't just, this isn't a democracy, you know. And the coach comes out. And, and the umpire explains. She says, she explains what happened two weeks ago. And she said, if a kid like that is going to tell the truth, I'm going to take him at his word. How great would it be if we lived in that world? Right? How great would it be if we just could count on what our friends, family, acquaintances said? They would just tell us the truth. It would be a better world. It would be a world that looks more like the redeemed world that Jesus is going to bring back and that he's called you and I through the gospel to be a part of. Our job is to bring truth and honesty back to our world, and it happens through us being people of truth, being people of honesty. Your integrity, my integrity, reveals where we're spiritually aligned, with the father of lies or the way, the truth, and the life. Again, I'm going to pray for us. I just want to say this. My heartbeat, my passion is that we don't come here on Sunday mornings and go, interesting. That was good. Hey, great message. I would rather have the worst message you've ever heard, but the Spirit of God transform your life than for you to come and check off a box because you came, enjoyed yourself, laughed, maybe were challenged and walk out of here the same. Don't leave a liar. God's called us in a truth. How will you be different this week than you were last week?